Welcome back to Women in the Word. It's wonderful to be with you. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and I'm part of the teaching team, and so good to be here. I hope you are learning as much as I have been in the book of Revelation. We're learning some things, and one thing is in order for God to make way and prepare a way for his holy kingdom to be on earth. He has to judge the sin. He has to remove the rebelliousness from the earth. Look at what 1 John says about the world on your verse sheet. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as we were studying and working on these things, I've realized and I'm surprised that something that stands out to me the most in this study is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Even though these terrifying judgments are going on and they're ordained by God, the truth is throughout all of history, including in the tribulation, God always pursues us. In fact, Peter writes that the reason in the end times people think he's slow, the reason is God is being patient because his desire is that no one should perish, but everyone should come to repentance. That's the mercy of God in the midst of these horrible things. And look at how we see that. He sends out the Jewish evangelists, the 144,000 remnant of the Jews, to go out and make converts and share the truth in the middle of a dark time. He sent the two prophets that we looked at, the two witnesses about God. He sends them out. They're called olive trees and lampstands, symbolizing spiritual revival the light of Christ, spiritual revival that God sends into the darkness because he wishes no one would perish. Not everyone's going to be glad about that. There has been a battle for dominion going on since God judged Satan and his angels before the Garden of Eden. And listen to what Isaiah prophetically said about that time. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan's battle for dominion. Have you ever played the game Battleship? I played that growing up. I think it's still out there. I think you could still play it. And just to remind everyone, you've got the two boards. You're sitting here. Your opponent's there. You've got these grids in front of you, and you strategically put your battleships, hoping your opponent won't find it. And then there's columns, and you yell out, you know, do you have a C3? And you're hoping your missile is going to hit your opponent's battleship. And they say no, and if, if you don't get each other's, it's hit or miss. So you say hit, miss, that's how the game is played. The goal is to sink all your opponent's 
battleships. Satan had been playing the game of battleship for a really long time with God. The only problem for him is God has this great advantage. He knows every single move Satan's going to make. It doesn't matter to Satan. He's going to keep having a battle anyway. He wants to defeat the Most High God so he can be the Most High God. As God's enemy, he is constantly aiming at God and aiming at us, God's children, hoping to one day permanently sink God and sink us. So last week we ended chapter 11, the seventh trumpet was blown. We're not gonna find out what happened after that until chapter 16. So these next few chapters are not chronological. What they do do is give us insights into the situations and the events going on during this great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. They're always also going to introduce us to some of the characters involved during that time. And these chapters give us, as uh, Satan's enemies today, our own battle plan, because Satan, while we're on this earth, he is battling for dominion over us. Look at Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let's see what's happening today, chapter 12, verse one. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Okay, first thing we need to notice is this is called a great sign, and a sign is a symbol of something that God will reveal. And this is the first of seven signs we're gonna see in the rest of the book of Revelation. So this woman here is symbolic. She's not really a woman. And from the clues and the context, we realize that this is the nation Israel. Here's some possibilities of her symbols. Being clothed with the sun. Clothed with the sun. This is Israel. This is her incredible status with God. A nation chosen and deeply loved. It's like a white robe that she wears like the sun. Israel was wrapped in God's bright promises of salvation and glorious kingdom. The moon under her feet may represent God's covenant with relationship with Israel because new moons usually involved worship. She stands, therefore, on God's great faithfulness. She stood firmly on this covenant relationship with God of descendant and land and blessings. And then the crown of 12 stars represent, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. They were like a shining crown. They were meant to point all nations upward to God. This was their calling. You know, uh, one person said the sun and the moon also may refer to Jacob and his wife, Rachel. Remember, Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel and his wife, Rachel, and here's why this person felt that way. 
When their son Joseph was young, do you remember he would have all those dreams and make his brothers mad? And so he had another dream, and 11 stars bowed down to him, and the sun and the moon bowed down to him, and he couldn't wait to tell his family this dream. (laughs) Not a real smart guy when he was young. And so his dad, Jacob, just rebukes him and says, how dare you say your brothers, the 11 stars, and your mother and I, the sun and the moon, are going to ever bow down to you. The sun and the moon is a symbol here. What about Israel being pregnant and crying out in birth pains? For centuries, Israel had suffered. They had longed for their Messiah to come, to usher in a new kingdom for them. So in verse 2, we see Israel's past suffering before the first coming of Christ. But in the next few verses, we will see the future suffering of Israel as they wait for the second coming of Christ. All within a few verses together. Israel waited, Israel suffered, but God had a plan to bless them all along. And I thought, this is so true in our lives. There is no way we are not going to have times of suffering living in this world. But what we have to always remember is that God has a plan all along. We can also remember we wear the sun, the moon, and the stars. And I want to envision that next time I'm in a suffering time. I can remember I am covered and wrapped in the incredible love of God. I stand like on the moon in a relationship with God who's given me many faithful promises. I wear a crown of hope for the rest of the world to see. When a Christian suffers, the rest of the world should see they They have a hope. They still have a brightness about them. Look at Psalm 118. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Okay, let's continue in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, Satan enters the picture here. What are some of the symbols that prove his identity? Well, the first one is what color is he? That's bloodshed, that's war, that's darkness, that's evil. And then from Daniel 7, we learn the seven heads and the ten horns and the seven diadems describe Satan's control over past and future world empires. He will rule 
until the seventh trumpet sounds. And we read here that he won't rule alone. Once upon a time, Satan took his tail, symbolically, swept through heaven and grabbed one-third of the angels and brought them down to earth with him to be his demons. So during his original rebellion, one-third of the angelic host joined his insurrection. And so here, Satan is wanting to hit God's battleship Israel because it carries the Savior of the world. Jesus will descend from the nation of Israel, will rule with the rod of iron, meaning he will be king over all the nations. But Satan is battling for dominion, and Jesus will be in his way like Israel is. So Satan inflicts relentless pain on Israel, hoping to destroy the messianic line, but he couldn't stop the virgin birth. It was out of his hands, so he did the next best thing. He decided to destroy this Christ child that was born. Herod became the puppet of Satan to destroy Jesus, and remember, he tried to trick the wise men, and then he said, hey, tell me where the baby is, and then I can go worship later on. And the wise men got word, don't go that way anymore, and Herod is so angry that he literally murders all the two-year-old boys in the entire region of Bethlehem. This is Israel's suffering. Fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy, look on your verse sheet, Matthew 2. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And of course, Rachel, we just saw, was Jacob's wife, who was buried very near Bethlehem. Twice, an angel came to Joseph directly and told him how to escape Herod, who is being a puppet for Satan. And Satan continued to try to destroy Jesus throughout his time here on earth. But after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended to God. That's what that verse means. God caught him up. He ascended to God and victoriously he inherited all authority on heaven and earth. Satan fired his missile. It was a miss. But Israel was not off of Satan's radar. He continued to plague Israel, and he has plans in the future to plague them during the tribulation. So the 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel, they are restored, they are redeemed, they flee to the place that God has prepared for them in the future. Some believe that they will be taken care of miraculously, just like he took care of Israel when they fled from Egypt. And so, as they await the second coming of Christ, they will be nourished by God for three and a half years, and this is also true for us today. We know God has prepared a place for us. Well, what, what do we do while we're still here on earth? when our enemy is attacking us. When he attempts to overcome us, we remember God himself is where we flee. He is our protection. He is our deliverance. When we find ourselves in a wilderness, 
we flee into his arms. He is our peace. He is our contentment. Um, remember when you were little, if you got hurt, what's the first thing you wanted to do? Find your mom, maybe your dad. I have two beautiful little granddaughters, and they're in our house a lot, and they'll stub their toe and start crying. And Ted and I could get on the floor, we could put our arms out, we can call them over, and they're like, no, where's my mom? Where is my daddy? Where's my mommy? And they run around the house looking for them. When we hurt, we should be as determined as that to go first to our Heavenly Father. I often go first to people, first to get someone's opinions, first to get someone's counsel, and that is all good stuff that God gives us. We help each other that way. But I should say no going to my father. He knows. He cares. He's my refuge. He will keep me safe. Look what Psalm 18 says. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Okay, so after these misses, Satan, these misses that Satan makes, he stops, he looks up into heaven and decides that's where his next battle is going to be, a great war in heaven itself. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is Michael the archangel. Archangel means chief angel, and Michael is the only angel in the Bible that is called an archangel. And here he becomes a player against Satan's desire for dominion. Though Satan was defeated before at the first coming of Christ, his end is delayed and in stages. Up to this point, as strange as this sounds to us, he has some limited access to heaven. But he also has limited access to earth. He does not get as much power as he would like to get. He doesn't get to be in heaven accusing us as much as he would like to be. And he doesn't get to be on earth ruining it as much as he would like to. So the state of war has existed from the beginning, since the fall of Satan. And I thought of a few examples. Think about how Satan battled with God over Job. Think about how Satan battled with Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. Think about how Satan battled with Jesus about Peter. Think about how Satan battles against us with God in heaven, accusing us as unworthy. In fact, the word devil comes from a Greek word that means to slander. That's what he does. 
So as his demise begins to draw near, the battle becomes intensified. It's a state of war in heaven, and he is hoping to sink a battleship in heaven. We're not totally sure when this war took place. We know it was in the end times. Some people believe it took place right after the rapture, maybe because... Satan, with the church gone, won't have the church to accuse anymore of their unworthiness. They're already with God. So this is the last time Satan will be allowed to walk through heaven's doors after this heavenly battle. He'll be cast out of heaven forever as Michael and his angels win this heavenly war. And I like how the verse described this. Satan was thrown out and his angels were thrown down too. And I can almost picture, you know, Michael saying, get out, Satan, and take your angels with you. <laughs> Getting rid of those people for the last, those horror demons, the last time in heaven. What a great victory. Okay, let's look at verse 10. Here's what happened afterwards. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they've, been, and they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So remember, John's watching this vision. And so that dark cloud of demons is just now falling from the sky when he hears a loud voice announce, hey, yes, salvation now, power now, the kingdom of God now, coming with the advent of the millennial kingdom where Christ will reign in the very near future. And those who were martyred for their faith took part in the heavenly victory by the blood of Christ that saved them and by their testimony of that when they were on earth. So heaven had this rejoicing party. Satan is defeated, but they immediately send a warning to earth and sea because Satan was on his way, he was not a happy camper, full of wrath, trying to sink some battleships on his way to the earth, knowing his dominion was slipping away. After this defeat, he set his sight on Israel once again. He plans to annihilate the nation of Israel from the face of the earth. God was ahead of Satan and covered Israel with his protection. We've talked about that. But the scriptures tell us God was covering them with his covering like wings of an, evil, of an eagle. Wings often meant protection and comfort. And uh, this is when Israel will live the three and a half years in the wilderness, the second half of the tribulation. But I do have to say this. Many Jews will lose their lives during the tribulation, but the 144,000 will be protected. Many Jewish martyrs will come during this time. 
It seems Satan will cause a great army to pursue Israel. The scriptures talk about it like a river, but a lot of commentaries believe this is really a military battle. He sends out to the Jews that are trying to hide in the wilderness. God destroys this army by the earth opening its mouth. And think about all the earthquakes we've been reading about. Probably one of those earthquakes is what might have swallowed this army into its mouth. And let's see what Satan's response to that was in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Kind of a scary image, isn't it, of him standing on the sand of the sea. This means he is looking over the entire world. He's looking over all the nations of the world, and he sees himself as the king over them all. And he has another target. He plans to destroy all the offspring, both Jew and Gentile believers, that are converted through the, the witness of the Israelites. Now, the devil hates those who keep God's commands, we see here, and he hates those who love God's Son. And we look at all the ways God protected this nation he loved, we can realize what the power of love means in our lives, what God's love for us means in our lives. It's easy to forget. Here's the truth. There is no plan from our enemy that will thwart the plans of God in our life. None. A good thing to remember when we're feeling his presence. In our fallen world, Satan will inflict pain in our lives, but God's love for us keeps us on that path of purpose because he loves us. Look at Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so we left Satan in that position in the midst of the nations represented by the sand of the sea, and he summons a beast a powerful demon out of the abyss of demons. The sea often represents the demonic. And since he stands on the sea representing all the nations of the world, he is a Gentile. We will call the beast the Antichrist. Satan will control everything that he does, and he will fool and capture the entire world. And the prophet Daniel said this, he will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its said seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. 
And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? After the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, it opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all those who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the final satanic world empire will be inseparable from the demonic man who rules it. Swindoll calls the Antichrist the greatest personification of deception in all of history. The description here is symbolic, but they all point to literal realities in this man. And you can find more descriptions in the prophecies of Daniel. First of all, the ten horns, these are ten powerful nations and their kings under Satan's control. And ten is also a number of totality, so in this point, it would be total power over these ten nations, political power. They will assist the Antichrist as he controls the world. Horns also represent power, and the Antichrist will have so much power that he will rise from these 10 nations and end up dominating them. And he wears a crown that points to his regal domination. Seven heads, these are the important rulers and empires in the world. If you want to write them down, I'll say I'm sort of slow. First of all, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the seventh kingdom is the kingdom of the Antichrist, made up of all the nations from the ten horns, the revived Roman Empire. So John is staring at the beast in his vision, and he realizes that he will control the final world government, a one-world government, a one-world religion, a one-world economic system. Can you even imagine that today? One world doing all the same thing in these areas. It is an anti-God coalition headed by the beast. On the beast's head were blasphemous names, Maybe these were Roman deity names of false gods. They called their gods God, Lord, Savior, Son of God. Maybe those were the blasphemous names the Antichrist wore, talking about himself. He has characteristics of a leopard, feet like a bear, and mouth like a lion. And after my talk about the giraffe, I was glad the giraffe was not in here. <laughs> the vicious giraffe. <laughs> These animals represent three past empires. Greece is the leopard, swift and agile in conquest. The Medo-Persian Empire is the bear, ferocious, strong, 
devouring. Babylon is the lion of fierce and consuming power. And here's what's important. These were the nations that opposed the nation of Israel, that were enemies to the nation of Israel in the ancient world. Three enemy empires. And they're on the Antichrist. And what that means is he will embody the total of all the world empires that stood opposed and stood against the nation of Israel. This Antichrist also, of course, will be empowered by Satan himself, acting as a dictator, leading the greatest of all evil empires there ever will be. How in the world does Satan bring this man into power, this Antichrist? He comes to power supported by a supernatural deliverance by Satan, we just read. He miraculously heals a head wound of the Antichrist. And there's so many opinions of what this might be. I'm just going to look at two of those. First, it could be something politically. Since the heads represent important rulers and empires, the wound could mean the past destruction of the Roman Empire. And then when the Antichrist gets involved, he revives this empire. So the wound would refer to the kingdom of the beast. He'll suffer a deadly political blow, and then he'll miraculously be victorious. Second, it could mean physically. In some translations, verse 3 reads this way, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. These are the exact words used in reference to Jesus Christ as our lamb. His death was real, but his body was resurrected. And maybe the Antichrist mimics Jesus' death and resurrection through some kind of deceptive injury and then a miraculous recovery like a copycat Jesus Christ. Either way, either of those things, politically or physically, the result is that the world cries out, who is like the beast? Who can fight against the beast? Look at the beast. And they begin to worship him like a god, falling right into Satan's plans and desires. And when they worship the Antichrist, who are they really worshiping? They're really worshiping Satan himself. Do you remember when we talked a few weeks ago about the four horses that came out and Jesus opened the seven seals to have them come out. And the Antichrist came riding on the first one on a white horse. Remember that? And remember the rider was carrying a bow but no arrows? And we would think, how could the Antichrist come into power without war and bloodshed? It's easy. We see it here right now. It's because of Satan. It's because he gives him the power. Because he deceives the world because he maneuvers things to bring the Antichrist into power and he gives them a throne and the authority. And then the Antichrist speaks blasphemous words against God, against his kingdom, and against us, all his saints. As Satan battles for dominion, his goal is to conquer all believers living on the earth and many will be martyred at this time. Remember the two witnesses 
that I mentioned earlier that were witnesses for God, remember when they were killed, that would have been happening about this same time. The later tribulation years will be characterized by victory of the Antichrist over God's saints. And so John hears that reality. He hears a sad prophecy when he is seeing these visions about this persecution. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I'm thinking, a call for endurance and faith? When you have this diabolical, murdering, powerful man in control of the world, how could they do that? How could they stay faithful to God? How could the saints do that? They knew something that God was probably stirring deeply in their heart, giving them the grace and the courage they needed. We can receive this when we're in a terrifying trial. We take courage that no matter how powerful Satan is, God is more powerful. It's easy to forget that when we're in the middle of the trial. We think this is going to do us in. This is going to happen. What if that happens? We forget God is more powerful than whatever is happening to you. He's still in control. We see that in this passage. Did you notice? The beast was given that haughty mouth. The beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. The beast was even allowed to make war on the saints that God loved. The beast was given authority over all nations and over all people. God allowed it. Nobody's going to change God's plans. No one's going to do something greater than God can do. God will allow Satan to utter blasphemies and to martyr his children, to bring the rage of Satan to its culmination on earth for three and a half years. And even though many saints will lose their lives, they will never be out of God's hands. You know, Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. When we die, we're still in God's hands for all eternity. So trials we suffer today call for our endurance and our faith to remain strong. We can do that if in our hearts we know God is greater than Satan. God is greater than this trial. If we forget that, we will fall into times of great fear and great despair when hard times come. Okay, so now that the world wasn't already under enough great deception, Satan brings another player on the scene to add to it. We won't read it, but we'll just talk about it. This is the beast from the earth, a false prophet. He promotes the Antichrist's power and convinces the world to worship him as God. And um, just for a little levity right here, I, my first thought was the Christmas story, that movie. Remember the bully that bullies kids and then he's got his little sidekick who's got the black leather jacket and the boots? You know, in my hometown, we had that duo. Stevie was the big one, Randy was the little one. 
He even wore the black leather jacket. He wore the black boots. Our whole town was terrified of him. Our school was terrified of him. I lived on Elm Street. You could ride your bike on Elm Street. Next Street, Maple Street. You could ride your bike on Maple Street. Next Street, Cherry Street. Do not go down Cherry Street. <laughs> Stevie and Randy live on Cherry Street. We, I never rode my bike down Cherry Street. We all knew. I had a run-in with them in one time, and they terrified me. I wanted to tell a quick story. My sister, she was a little smarter than me. She's out riding one day on Elm Street, and out of nowhere comes Stevie and Randy. Grab her bike, stop her, and say, where do you think you're going? So she thinks very quickly on her feet. She said, I don't remember why, but there were some pears in the basket on her bike. So she said, um, I'm going to throw these pears at someone I don't like on Maple Street. <laughs> it was the perfect answer. They said, well, we'll come with you. <laughs> Sounded like something they would like to do. So Dawn in the... The two duo bully and his toady come over, go on Maple Street, and she said, there's her friend in the yard, <laughs> and she has to throw a pear at her. <laughs> she looks at my sister and calls her dad, and the dad runs out, and everybody, the, the jig was up, everybody left. My sister made it home safe, but she lost a friend. <laughs> Obviously, that's no comparison to what's going on here, but I thought it'd be nice to laugh a minute. <laughs> this beast from the earth is demonic. It was called out of the earth. While the Antichrist is going to be about politics and military things, the false prophet will be a religious leader, an advocate, and an advocator of satanic religion. Maybe his two lamb horns that you read about that he comes with represented his arrival, that he was gentle as a lamb, masquerading as the true lamb of God, masquerading as a religious person, but he spoke like a dragon, meaning he will be Satan's mouthpiece. His message is to bring false world religion headed by the Antichrist. In fact, the false religious system would brazenly imitate the divine trinity. It was a way Satan could continue to blaspheme God and send some missiles his way. Satan was pretending to be God the Father, God the Almighty. The Antichrist was seeking the place of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. The false prophet's role was like the Holy Spirit leading others into worship, only in this case, the object of the worship is the Antichrist. He performs signs. His great signs in this verse is the same phrase used for Jesus' miracles, great signs, so we can expect him to mimic the miracles of Christ. He even seems to bring to life an image of the beast, the Antichrist. Maybe Satan and his demons will possess this idol, I'm sure they will, and when you're worshiping an idol, you're worshiping Satan, and they were used to that in the past. The image will only appear to breathe and speak because only God can create. How they're going to do that, I do not know. Mechanically, computerized, I don't know. 
It'll be the first time ever that an idol can talk. If you don't worship this image, you are killed. If you don't carry the number, the mark of the beast on your forehead or your right hand, 666, you cannot buy anything. You cannot go anywhere. You can't get the necessities of life. You stand out as one who won't worship the world ruler. It will be very obvious. No one knows exactly what 666 means. John does tell us this. It's the number of a man. And one thought is the number six is one less than the perfect number seven in the Word of God. And the fact that it's three times is sort of... um, recognizing for all the claims that Satan is going to make to deity, he was just a creature. The Antichrist was just a creature. The false prophet, just a creature, not the creator. Blinded by sin and unbelief, the world will fall prey to the second beast deceptions. Let me just read you a couple things of what a commentary said. The false prophet's arguments will be subtle, convincing, appealing. His oratory will be hypnotic. He will move masses to tears or whip them into a frenzy. He will control the communication media of the world, will organize mass publicity to promote his ends. He will be the master of every promotional device. Public opinion will be to his command. He will mold worldly thought and shape human opinion. And then listen to this. His deadly appeal will lie in the fact that what he says will sound so right, so sensible, so exactly what unregenerate men have always wanted to hear. All of this is Satan's final battle attempt to cause the world to worship him, to turn them away from worshiping the one who has the true dominion forever. Look at Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, here's the word, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is about to sink Satan's battleship, so we all have to come back. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that your plans are just and good. We pray that you give us wisdom today to continue to move forward as yours, to be light in a darkness and to do it with you at our side. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.